This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What kind of economic year do we have coming up in 2024? Well, everybody will want to ask an economics expert, somebody who knows the stuff, who will give you give it to you straight. And we've got our own guy to do that. He is Eric Cam, economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. It's great to have you back on. You're our guy. We appreciate you making the time for us. Happy New Year, my friend. Always an honor. What um, what do you see coming in 2024? There's talk about more food inflation, but a better year all told. Can we really have as bad an economic year in 24 as we had in 23? I wouldn't want to bet against it. I mean, the problem right now, Greg, is that I don't see in terms of our liberal government any type of growth driver in place other than immigration. And by the way, that as I always say, as a Jewish person, I'm not against immigration because there isn't a, a Jewish person for sure who didn't get here from somewhere else. The problem is if immigration and population growth is your only growth strategy, you're in real trouble. And I think we're seeing that right now because if you look at any macroeconomic indicator, whether it's gross domestic product or imports or exports, We are flat. We are at about zero growth and we're trending downward. And that scares me. And so when you say, can it be as bad? Well, my big concern always is the housing market and the labor market. And both look really soft right now. And to, as you would say, zero in on one of them, we have 60% of mortgages coast to coast in this country that are going to be renegotiated in 2024 or 2025. So they have yet to be hit by those inflationary interest rates. And so it worries me when I see so many statistics Mm. and so many um, interviews with Canadians who say they're one or two paychecks away from insolvency, that really starts to scare me when I think they cannot afford to see their mortgages double, Greg. So I don't hold out a ton of hope for this year. I don't think interest rates are going to drop anytime before the fall of 2024. So is it going to be as bad? I don't know, but I wouldn't hold your breath. It's going to be a whole lot better. I, and I, yet I've heard, I've heard, you know, other reports that, or other speculation that Canada even drops their interest rates before the United States does. And that's an odd one to me, Eric, because their inflation is slightly more under control, not fully, but slightly more. Inflation's not a Justin Trudeau problem. It's a worldwide global phenomenon post-pandemic. Of course it is. But that the U.S. would go after us, I feel like it'll be the exact opposite because, A, also, uh, Joe Biden's got an election to win, and Justin Trudeau doesn't have to call an election this year, and lower interest rates are better to stimulate economic growth and spending. There's not a chance in hell that we drop interest rates before the United States. Not a chance for two reasons. One, everything you just said, so I'm not gonna repeat it. And number two, our Bank of Canada, our central bank is out of the closet on this. They are not gonna do anything until they reach that magical 2% level. And we're not there. And in fact, in a little way, the, the public is being fooled because I could give you inflation a thousand different ways. But if I pull out some of the things that really don't matter and leave in food, leave in natural gas, leave in some of the real essentials, we're nowhere near 2%. That number is way higher than 2%. And the bank knows it and the government knows it. So there is not a chance in heck that we are going to lead that race to lower interest rates. Interest rates are going nowhere 
for at least eight or nine months. Eric Cam's our guest, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University economics professor. Housing affordability in Canada is the worst uh, since the 1980s. Uh, a lot of that's the rise in borrowing costs, which you mentioned. But I think every family like yours, like mine, uh, you know, our producer, Sheba, Dave Bradley, everybody that owns a home or at least has a mortgage for a home, they want to maintain value for their own house. And they say, oh, my goodness, how can my kids get into the housing game? I- I'm worried we just can't have both. We can't have both. But like ho- house values can't hold and your kids won't a- be able to properly buy their own house in southern Ontario. Like we are coming around to that reality, aren't we? Oh, we're coming around to a very scary reality in this city. We are coming around to realizing that we are being hurt as an economist for the demand side of the of the housing market because demand is still through the roof thanks to population growth, thanks to immigration, and we're in a mess on the supply side because there's no new houses being built right now. And I know that if you read anything, it says new houses, tens of thousands of houses, 20,000s of houses, I say where? And I say when, because where are they going to go in urban centers? Are you going to put them in downtown Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver? No, there's no space. So the only place you're going to put them is outside of urban centers. And then you have the question of, can people actually live there and get to work? We are in the biggest housing crisis we have been since the Great Depression. People can't afford houses, and there are no houses to buy. And so I'm going to use an old joke from sports, which is there was a famous coach who said, we can't win on the road, we can't win at home, and we're running out of places to play. And in this country, we can't afford to rent, we can't afford to buy, and we're running out of places to live, Greg. Ah, but Alberta has enticed people to move from Ontario, and the Atlantic provinces has have enticed people. And you know me, I check my sister living in upstate New York, me previously living in Michigan. I look at those home prices, and they're moderately inflated. But you can get in like we're 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 having a tremendous, tremendous dice roll here with sending a lot of people outside of Toronto and southern Ontario. And maybe you and me and a lot of other people we know will make that decision even someday because of affordability. Our kids sure might. It sounds good to me. The East Coast is stunning. The problem is, is it's a bit of a Canadian mindset that's much different than the American mindset as you you live there. I never have. But I know that talking to my American friends who grew up in the States and educated in the States, they're far more mobile. There's Mm -hmm. more of a labor mobility in the States where people are willing to go where they have to go for the job and willing to go where they have to go for the house. And I don't in general find that in Canada. I don't Mm -hmm. find we're as mobile a country. We're pretty stoic in our my grandparents lived here, my parents lived here, and I want to live here. Well, it's fine. Up until this generation, you could probably make that claim. In general, you could say, I will probably do better than my parents. This, sadly, for your children Mm. and my children, this is the turning point generation where they actually may not do as well as us. And housing is only one issue. I got a minute. I'm going to bring this up on Think Tank. Uh, We've got Chloe Brown and Brad Bradford, both mayoral candidates uh, with us at 730. I know you were on uh, uh, Think Tank a a couple weeks ago, but Old Navy closing up shop at uh, at the Eaton Center. I love Eaton Center. Uh, I love being even I was there three weeks ago just doing some Christmas shopping. I'm probably walking through it four times a year. But I used to be there 40 times a year, um, and I, I hate seeing uh, big anchors of Eaton Center close up. Old Navy's going to shut down later on this month. We're really still struggling with these brick-and-mortar stores, and I'm worried about even what the Eaton Center could become if it's not vibrant and full of shops, Eric. You should, because we know that a lesson that Sheldon Levy taught us at school 
is that a busy, bustling center is a safe center. And so the real problem with this, other than the economic problem, I mean, I don't have to tell you about the shift in demography and how we're getting younger and people don't mm -hmm. want to shop in stores. I don't have to tell you about that, nor do I have to tell you about how rent is so expensive and labor is so expensive. I think the real issue, the hidden issue here might be safety, that if these malls are allowed to become emptier and emptier, then we actually open them up for more and more of the hooliganism that we've started to see. And some of these protesters who shut off traffic and shut off business, and now public safety is compromised. So I don't wanna yeah. hijack the topic and take it back to what's going on in the Israeli-Palestine situation. But I don't like the fact that for our shopping centers and Eaton Center is only one of them, that if they're emptier, what does that mean in terms of safety? Who's going to start filling up those spaces? And I don't like the people that are hanging out in plazas with nothing to do yeah. all day. We both know nothing good comes of that. It doesn't. I uh, loved our visit this morning. Eric, thanks so much for the time. Stay healthy. Happy New Year, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're keeping our eyes, obviously, uh, with victim impact statements and to when we get some finality in the sentencing of Nathaniel Veltman. We all remember uh, the summer of 2021, June of 2021, and this horrific story. June 6th is going to obviously be a day that is also uh, marked as a horrific day in London, Ontario, in Ontario proper and probably throughout all of Canada as well. 70 victim impact statements were given in two full days. Veltmo was convicted of first-degree murder in a 2021 truck attack against a London Muslim family. Um, and right now, what has to be determined is sentencing. It could be a longer period of time before a parole hearing is granted to the 23-year-old Veltman. It's a case that, again, I think we all know where we were when we heard about it. We all know how ill we felt about it, and we're still dealing with some of the ramifications of it. I'm happy to bring on the special representative to the federal government on combating Islamophobia in Canada, and she's been on our show many times. She is Amira El-Gawabi. Amira, Happy New Year. Thank you very much for making the time for our audience today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Greg. Absolutely. Um, at, at minimum, at minimum, it looks like this trial has had some, uh, this trial and uh, the impact statements have had some speed to it. But it's very difficult. We think sometimes criminal cases, Amira, give closure to situations. I, I think it's going to be a long time for the Muslim community in London, let alone the whole city of London, Ontario, to feel a sense of closure. The, the pain and the suffering is still so raw, isn't it? It is very raw. And I think it was just the nature of this uh, terrible attack on this uh, family. As, as your listeners might recall, it was, as you said, you know, a couple of years, three and a half years ago, we were just coming out of the pandemic. People were, you know, going out on strolls uh, after dinners. You know, that was very few entertainment that we had. And, this, you know, this family, multi-generational family out for an evening stroll, um, specifically targeted by this white nationalist who had, had you know, admitted to you know, seeing this family, uh, identifying that they were Muslim through their clothing, through the father's beard, or the father and mother, uh, their two children, and, and the grandmother who were out, and he literally, you know, had fitted his truck uh, with a grill because he planned to hit a family or hit people. Um, and when he saw them, he literally turned his truck around and you know hit them, trying to you know instill the maximum damage. And very sadly, four of those five 
family members were killed, uh, leaving behind, you know, a young nine-year-old boy um, who, you know, whose final sort of victim impact statement was the last one we heard uh, on Friday afternoon uh, during the two days of, of uh, sentencing hearings. So, you know, the, the pain that he, the little, little boy has and his extended family members and then, of course, the broader city, I mean, it's just yeah. un, unimaginable. I know the city has wrapped itself um, and uh, very much around um, this little boy and, and not just uh, the Muslim community. When I read his victim impact statement, Amira, it is it, it's heart wrenching. He even talks about how he wishes he could do homework again for his mom instead of playing video games. He wishes, though, his sister would annoy him at times as siblings do. He wishes um, he could fight with her one more time. It's and, and never mind that, just the physical injuries that he's had to recover from after this accident. Um, there's a long road ahead for this this brave boy. There is. And, I, and again, it really brings home, you know, you know, hate in our midst. These types of ideas that this individual, this now convicted killer um, was holding really does uh, make us all as a nation question, you know, why why such horrible conspiracy theories circulate online, how they um, clearly um, sort of, you know, can sit in someone's mind and really affect, you know, their own trajectory of their life. You know, he's made this horrific decision that day. He is now, you know, looking at a lifetime behind bars. Um, it is it is really quite uh, quite a challenge for us as a society to realize um, how dangerous these ideas are. Um, I mentioned you're uh, Canada's first special representative on combating Islamophobia, um, and and you went and did that job about a year ago at this time, a little, little more than uh, a year ago. You couldn't have anticipated the year that would be. You couldn't have anticipated October 7th and a lot of the reaction to it. What do you feel the tone of our country is right now, not just in our major cities, but but everywhere you look from the conversations you have, Amira? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it feels a little tough right now. Um, certainly, there's a lot of concern about rising Islamophobia, rising anti-Semitism in Canada. Um, I think when we look at just the um, the way that communities are feeling about what's happening in Gaza, we see the constant protests. Um, we see, you know, the the push on the federal government to do more, and at the same time, we know that um, sometimes we're we're unfortunately realizing that people are, are taking sort of actions that do cross over um, into hate, and we have to collectively really stand against all forms of hate, whether it's Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and any other form. And I think this is a this is a really critical time for our country uh, to be able to balance the civil liberties, the right for people to protest and participate um, peacefully in, in such actions, but at the same time to be respectful of one another and ensure that everyone feels safe. So are you worried Are you worried that, that a, a proper cause, which is the future of the Palestinian people, their safety um, right now, Israel's proportionality in terms of reacting to October 7th, those are all important conversations that have nuanced balance that can be debated. Are you worried those messages are falling by the wayside because of the actions of some of the protests, because some lines have been crossed and blurred here in, in our in our streets and in our communities? I think the issue really is that there are um, bad actors um, in our communities who are creating um, a lot of negativity, whether you look online and you see the, the smearing of one another, you see the misinformation and disinformation and the deliberate sort of um, stirring of the pot, if you will, where, you know, that nuanced conversation that you talk about, Greg, 
is absolutely missing. And what we really need to understand is that there is a lot of emotion. You know, when I, while I was in London, I took some time, one of those evenings, to meet with Palestinian Canadian families. You know, one woman I met with mm-hmm. has met has lost 300 members of her family in Gaza. Like the sheer pain and agony that people are experiencing in our country as we speak, as this war continues is real and people need um, the proper outlets they need to be able to express this grief they need to be able to call for um, you know per- more permanent ceasefire more action from the government if they so choose um, at the same time though as I said we do recognize that everything has to be done in a way that ensures that everyone feels safe yeah there is that I, I wish that story got more attention than the bad actors that you reference let's keep having these conversations I'm I'm tight for time I know you are as well but I appreciate you making it for our show this morning. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. Amir El-Gawabi joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, The big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL. On the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. I swear. There's just more to go to here. Rough crowd. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you better land a Taylor Swift joke when Taylor Swift is actually in the house. Uh, she had a moment with the long sip of her drink after Joe, Joe Coy's joke about her at the Golden Globes that you just heard. The big winners were kind of the big winners at the box office this summer. You remember the Barbenheimer weekend? A lot of people went to see both movies back to back, double header. Well, Oppenheimer won Best Motion Picture Drama. Barbie won cinematic and box office achievement. There were other wins for Barbie as well. Watch for poor things at the Oscars. This is a movie I've been wanting to see for a while. Mark Ruffalo, Emma Stone, I love Willem Dafoe. I'll go see Willem Dafoe in anything. And he's in Poor Things as well. He got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Uh, Didn't win it, however. That went to Robert Downey Jr., who's likely going to win Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars for Oppenheimer. So it gets us primed for award season. Love all the stuff. Um, we were fast forwarding through the commercials and yeah, fast forwarding through a good chunk of the monologue. Morgan Hoffman probably was watching it live. That's a responsible thing to do. Global news entertainment reporter. And she joins us now on Toronto today. Hey Morgan, I couldn't do 13 minutes of jokes with celebrities in the house. Maybe you could and, and I couldn't, but, um, Joe Coy got a pretty resounding, uh, blast on social media for some of the jokes, including that Taylor Swift one, didn't he? Sure did. Listen, anybody who makes that job look easy, you know they're so good. And it's very tricky. And that does not mean that Joe Coy is not good. He's so well-known for his stand-up and his specials. He doesn't need to prove to anybody that he's funny. However, he got this hosting, hosting gig like 10 days before the actual award show. Maybe he wasn't prepped. Maybe he thought things were going to land, but no, it was hard for the audience to watch. People could not stop talking about the jokes not landing. I didn't even feel like there were a lot of jokes. There was just a lot of talking and awkward moments, but that Taylor Swift moment, (laughs) I just love it because she doesn't have to do anything. She just had to give a look, take Mm -hmm. a long sip of her drink, and I think that was kind of the theme of how people were feeling in the audience and at home watching Joe Coy. But it only lasted a few minutes off the top, and then, you know, we got into all the good stuff at the award show. We really did. Um, And I mentioned uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, uh, big winners, which often with big box office winners, as you know, Morgan, sometimes that doesn't happen. But both these movies got fantastic reviews. Both gave people lots of interesting conversations after the movies, and that's what it's supposed to be about. You go to the movie and then talk about it for hours afterwards. Both were big winners last night. Exactly. And, you know, it's so great because, you know, Critical Darlings – when they're represented and celebrated at award shows, like you said, they're not always the biggest box office 
successes. So for the people watching at home, every huge star was there. This was a huge star-studded award show, which is really cool for us to watch. And like you were saying, I mean, Barbie took home the award in a new category that was introduced last night for cinematic achievement. I mean, this is a movie that took home over a billion dollars. So it made sense that that movie was nominated. However, like you said, poor things kind of came in there and snuck in. Um, A lot of people were thinking Barbie was going to take home best picture in the musical category, uh, musical comedy category, and that went to poor things. And then you had Emma Stone. I think some people were wondering if Margot Robbie was going to take home best actress in that uh, musical comedy category, and Emma Stone took it, which was cool. But yes, Oppenheimer, which dominated the box office last uh, last summer, I mean, that took home five big awards, including best picture in the drama. Um, Killian Murphy took home best actor. He had that moment with the red nose after his partner kissed him with red lips. I mean, it was just so adorable. I love <laughs> yeah, it. I love yeah. it. Like, I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it on there. <laughs> the, so there were, I, I think there was some yeah, obviously and I think it's with all award shows, Morgan, but the Golden Globes, especially um, and, and rightly so, has had its criticism for, for lack of oh, diversity. It's had its yeah. criti- criticism, the Hollywood Foreign Press for not having uh, just having, to be honest, too many white men as members and not much of anything else. But two big breakthroughs last night, really. Lily Gladstone, an oh. indigenous actress, uh, won Best Actress in a Motion Picture uh, for, for a Drama. And I think a lot of people thrilled um, that Beef got a lot of, not just a lot of nominations, uh, but we saw a big win for Ali Wong in Beef, um, the Asian actress, who was just so brilliant in that. So brilliant. I mean, this is a show that had me at the edge of my seat. It's an, an, an interesting concept on paper. You're like, why do I want to watch a series about a road rage incident? But there's so much to it. So I was so happy um, that it took home the big awards that they were nominated for. That was a huge moment. But Lily Gladstone, for me, what a moment. Not just a historic nomination, now a historic win. First Indigenous woman nominated in the category for Best Actress in the Drama Series at the Golden Globes. Um, being up there, talking about just how Indigenous people have been treated in Hollywood and mm-hmm. how things are changing. I mean, what a moment. And you got to think about it. I didn't even really know who she was up until this movie. And she's opposite Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Robert De Niro, and she stood out as much as she did. So what a big moment for her. And yeah, can we just see what the Oscar nominations are going to come out with? Yeah, Beef ended up being uh, the first show created by and starring Asian Americans uh, to win in its category. Um, it, so good on so many levels. Um, and, and one of those uh, shows that you're like, nah, there ain't going to be a second season. It wrapped everything up as it should have uh, in the one season. Let me ask you about that because we've talked about diversity in the categories and, and I I'm just maybe I'm a traditionalist in that I I want men and women to have their own categories. I know there's pressure about blended categories. You wouldn't be able to tell as many stories if there was just best actor of any gender, best best uh, uh, best supporting actor or actress in any gender. We get more stories and more diversity because we have multiple categories. We do. And if you think about a lot of the changes that happened at the Golden Globes this year, one of them is that more people, more um, uh, nominations happened in each category. So normally we see five nominations in a category. This year we saw six just to have more diversity, to tell more stories, to have people's performances represented. So, yeah. And who knows, maybe, you know, in the future you'll see a combine and you'll see 10 people nominated. But I feel like that really eliminates people um, and, and the stories like you were saying. So I personally don't want that. I'm more than fine keeping um, separate categories like this. But I do know that that is something a lot of people are talking about. Yeah. Well, let's talk lots more closer to Oscar season. Big fan of your work, Morgan. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on with us uh, early this morning. 
Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was awesome to have her. There's a Global News Entertainment reporter. Uh, she, of course, is Morgan Hoffman talking about the 81st Golden Globe Awards. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Today is the fourth anniversary uh, and demarcation of terrible tragedy and really one of the worst um, uh, terrorist incidents in terms of a flight being downed um, that affected Canadians. There have been several, but this one took the lives of 55 Canadians and 30 permanent residents. There still isn't a lot of accountability. There still isn't a lot of compensation. Uh, and there's a lot of question about how, how hard we're trying and what we need to do more of four years along. But Flight 752, Ukrainian international flight, uh, Flight 752, was shot down a passenger flight going from Tehran to Kiev, Ukraine. Ironic, given what would happen in Ukraine a couple of years later, where it became uh, the battleground of a war we all were focused in on. Kaveh Sharuz is a lawyer and human rights activist and has worked with so many of these families of PS752. Kaveh, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thanks for making the time. Good to be with you. Is it hard to believe it's been four years? It's difficult to believe it's been four years, and especially, as you said, it's hard to believe that uh, there has been no accountability in the past four years. Not only that, um, Iran's regime, which perpetrated this heinous attack, has uh, not only delivered, has not only failed to deliver justice, um, it's tried to cover up the crime, it's uh, basically prosecuted some very low-level people, but has refused to tell us the truth. And yeah, four years is a long time to wait for the truth. There was a, um, a breakthrough, at least in terms of a court proceeding in August. Um, but if you could lay out for our listeners, an Ontario court awards $142 million to some families of, of flight PS752 victims. But and I feel like it would have been a bigger story, uh, Kaveh, if they'd gotten that money. There's no sign, uh, though the victim's family sued Iran, its supreme leader, and, and the IRGC. They're nowhere close to getting that compensation, are they? No, they're, they're not close to getting that compensation. So there is a court in Ontario that uh, adjudicated a case involving just a few of the families, not very many of them. Um, and the decision that the court made was that this attack was intentional, um, so that the government of Iran had basically deliberately shot down this flight. Um, and it awarded you know, a significant sum. But um, trying to recover that money is very, very difficult. You know, as, as you know, Iran and Canada don't have diplomatic relations. Iran doesn't have, uh, as far as we know, doesn't really have very much funds um, here in Canada. So recovering that money is going to be difficult. There is a different track, an international law track, um, ongoing with more families involved. And that case has gone to the International Court of Justice. Um, and the hope is that there'll be uh, you know, some modicum of justice um, arrived at there. Many have, have made it um, quite a significant point that the Canadian government has not listed Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Um, if they did, what would change about perception? Well, you know, the, the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, are by all accounts a terror group. I mean, the, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, have actually said as much um, in statements. Um, the effect that that would have would mean that, you know, this organization would be seen for what they are and that they wouldn't be able to fundraise or, or recruit here in Canada. Now that, you know, the IRGC is on the sanctions list, but that's very different uh, than being a terror organization. And I think if you list them as a terror group, you end up being able to prosecute any of their members um, here in this country, which I think would be a really significant step. I mean, they're the organization that shot down this flight. So at the very least, for killing so many Canadians, there ought to be some repercussions. Do other Western democracies think Canada is too friendly with Iran? Um, or at least I, I, not harsh I, enough. Friendly might be overstating it. We're not friends, but we're not yeah. very harsh in terms of condemnation. 
Um, I think that's the feeling probably in a, in a number of capitals, including Washington. I mean, you know, uh, the United States, especially under Donald Trump, took the step of listing the IRGC as a, as a terror group. Canada has not done that. In fact, you know, Canadian policy for a number of years until this flight was shot down was try to uh, restore relationships with Iran, something that a lot of activists like me were cautioning against. Um, it's um, unfortunate that it took a tragedy like this for the Trudeau government to see the nature of the Iranian regime, but I hope no subsequent government makes the mistake of thinking that this is an ordinary regime that they can do business with. Now, I'll ask you this because I think we're, we're uh, and this might not be the first time I ask a guest this question uh, leading up to the tr- primary season in the United States. What would a, another four years of a Donald Trump presidency do to North American relationships with Iran? And, and I guess the whole Middle East, because this is now a jigsaw puzzle with the belief that I- Iran is, is obviously supporting Hamas, helping fund Hamas, Hezbollah involved right now. Um, this is a bit of a powder keg situation that could be exacerbated or potentially stifled by a Trump presidency. That's an excellent question, really anybody's guess. And I, I, I hate saying anything positive about a Trump presidency, not to betray my own politics here. But I will say that on, that on Iran, he had better policies. What he recognized was the point that I made a minute ago, which is that you can't uh, try to restore relationships with them. You can't um, deal with them by giving them carrots. It's really the stick that works with mm-hmm. the Iranian regime. And I think taking a tougher line on Iran, which is what Trump will do, um, would actually cause Iran to retreat. Historically, anytime there's been pressure put on the Iranian government, they have retreated. So I think it would actually have a positive calming effect, ironically, um, if you know a Trump presidency were to were to occur. I know you weighed in on social media on what we saw yesterday. We're going to talk about it a good chunk of the morning uh, with the uh, the ironic term, the face-off uh, between people that went to a skating party at Nathan, Nathan Phillips Square and uh, what's deemed as pro-Palestine protesters. Um, what were your observations of some of the video you saw? Um, it was disturbing video. I, I think the observation I made on social media was, you know, if you want to attract people to your cause, uh, you know, be it the Palestinian cause or whatever cause, you have to try to, uh, you know, bring people in. You have to try to convince and persuade. And regrettably, what I'm seeing, uh, you know, whatever your position is on Palestine and Israel, you're not going to win people over by yelling at them, by you know, drowning out speakers and, and so on. And regrettably, too much of the protests that we're seeing with uh, you know, the pro-Palestinian folks is just yelling and hectoring and bullying. And um, that's a very unfortunate uh, turn of events. Yeah, I, I worry. Again, it's a uh, look, it, they're complex conversations. There's always uh, I use the t- two words nuance and subtlety at all times discussing any kind of Middle Eastern politics. And when you don't utilize those over and over again, weekend after weekend, three months and counting now, um, you're not only going to lose the neutrals, you might lose some people that that wanted to hear your side of things back in October. That's absolutely right. I mean, the whole point of democratic politics is you have to try to uh, convince and persuade. Um, and much of what we're seeing these days is not any attempt at persuasion. It's just yelling, which, as you say, I mean, all nuance is lost and you're not going to win any neutrals over to your cause. Kaveh, I appreciate your uh, your um, at, well, I'd call it activity and your um, your energy for continuing to uh, fight for the victims of uh, flight PS752. Thank you very much for making the time this morning. and We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Kaveh is joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Don't touch me. Don't, do not touch me. Do not touch me. You touch me. Don't touch me. Don't, you literally touch me. Stop away. Are you a soldier? Are you assaulting people? Shame on you! 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 
All right, just chaos and mayhem on a day when it's not supposed to be. Uh, And I know there's big things going on in the world. There's geopolitical struggles. We can find strife. We can find famine. We can find cruelty. We can find it all. We can find every ism. We can find racism. We can find sexism. People might not want it thrown in their faces when they're at a skating party in the city. And what we played you was protesters. I thought they were threatening. I don't know how else I'd describe it. An elderly couple that was out uh, ice skating. Um, And I don't know the background. Did they, in fact, the woman is skating away saying, I don't get it. I support Palestine. Uh, But they were out there and they were skating and they were clearly getting harassed and threatened. And I thought about that. And my parents now a little, little too old to skate. But I think we all have asked that question. What if it was my parents? What if, what if I, I'd been married, maybe that guy's been married and she's been married to him for 50, 55 years. Like that's working itself. Let's let's not play games. And at the same time, you're thinking how much you have your spouse's back, how much you have your kids back. I always said this, and I said this during the pandemic a bunch. The goal is we're supposed to push them out of the way of a moving car, our kids, not the other way around. You do it for your spouse as well. And I thought about those two older people um, skating yesterday. And I was pretty mortified. Um, I don't know where the security was. I don't know what was supposed to happen. If I went on there, if I was a teenager, and eight or nine of my buds were trying to go on the ice with shoes, somebody would have stopped us. But because they've got signs equating Nelson Mandela, of all people, with Hamas, and they're carrying Palestinian flags. Again, there's Palestinians who are mortified by this, okay? There is far from universal support in the Muslim world For actions like that and actors like that. We had Amir El-Gawabi on earlier talk about the bad actors that are out on our streets right now. Let's find out what the former chief of police for the city of Toronto thinks. He is Mark Saunders and he joins us now. Happy New Year. All the best. And thank you very much for coming on our show like you always do when we call. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Happy New Year to you, too. I'm hoping for a better 2024, Mark. But yesterday was January 7th and we're not off to an awesome start when I see sites like that, are we? No, but it it speaks to the emotion. Listen, there is a lot of emotion going on since October 7th and what's happened. And and this is the environment that we have right now. And there is going to become a time where this is going to stop. But when it stops, um, we don't know. Um, The chief of police, Myron Demke, we've talked about him before on the show. Uh, You know him well. Um, He issued an apology over the weekend, um, in essence, uh, for for a misunderstanding. He talked about the intent and and you saw probably some of the headlines, which, again, they're meant to sensationalize and get attention. Uh, We all have our moments where we're probably doing that in the media. Um, But one of the concepts was an, an interaction where officers brought people on the Avenue Road Bridge, some coffee and donuts that were purchased by other protesters. Demq apologized for that. Is there a set policy or is there not? They were they were viewed as taking sides. What was the what was your perspective on it? You know, sitting in that seat is difficult, especially for Chief Demq under the circumstance. And as life goes on, every plan is excellent, but people will always ruin it. And and so here's a case where, and I've said this to you over and over, Greg, Mm -hmm. the police, their role, if they're doing it right, they don't become the news. And the moment so they do become the news, the public is going to ask, you know, why did this happen and what are you going to do about it? So with Chief Demke putting that apology out, I think it was a good thing. It was a healthy thing. You want to stop the story. You want to move forward. And then on top of it, what is he going to do? He speaks to 
looking back at the operational plans and revisiting and making sure. And, and to me, that speaks to something on, on supervision. And it, it marries up to the budget that he spoke about, too, and why he wants the increase. And one of the things that he said that I found really stood out, he said 25% of his organization has less than five years. 25%. So he needs more supervision, especially on that ground level. And there are vacancies right now. And when you have that kind of formula, these could be some of the situations you get into. So mm. I see where the errors are made, and I think the plan is going to be a lot more robust. And, and, and the public, by and large, when they've done over 300 of these protests, the public still has, a, you know, they like the, the organization. The Toronto Police Service has a good reputation, but on the go forward, they're going to have to be a, a little bit more cautious, especially when it comes to, to decent supervision. Yeah. And this is not 10 years ago um, where somebody might be filming you. Everybody's filming everything at all times. And the idea of of again, I'd call them these professional protesters. They want you to they want you to flinch. Right. They want you to mess up. They want you to react to them. And, you know, and I know people become cops for a variety of reasons. There is that desire to serve and protect that sense of justice, community connection, a lot of family tradition. My dad was my mom was. They didn't sign up to become a police officer, Mark, to to mediate or navigate uh, a, a, a Middle East conflict that's eight decades old. This was this was a, a bug, if you will, not a feature for the job based on the last four months. It's kind of kind of unfair to ask them to referee this every weekend. Well, no, but they're also trained and the autonomous police service has more protests than any other uh, police agency in the country. And, and they, they deal with it very well and they have a good plan that's put together. But, you know, there are going to be these slips and these slips. Again, humans are involved in these things and the intentions may be good. But at the end of the day, the Toronto Police Service has to maintain neutrality when it comes to ensuring that the public is kept safe, number one. And then number two, when there's criminality, conduct thorough investigations and make those apprehensions when it's possible. I know that the hate crime unit has been increased tremendously. So Chief Demke has got that right. I know that they are conducting more investigations than the organization ever has in our history. So they're taking both sides of that double-edged sword, Greg. And, and yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not pretty, um, but, but that's what they're handed, and, and that's what they will do, and they'll continue to do that. Mark Saunders is the uh, former chief of police for the city of Toronto, joining us on 640 Toronto. Ron Chinzer was on earlier. Uh, I know you know Ron, and, and he mentioned he worries that there's been a politicization of policing. Um, and what he meant by that was simply these massive national issues, whether it's the convoy a couple of years ago, whether it's political protests of things happening thousands of kilometers away, there's, um, you know, th- there's an element of chiefs are picked by police boards. That includes appointees and counselors and mayors. There is that. I know I know politicians don't direct the police to do things, Mark, but there often is sometimes a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where it's very much like the convoy, where it's, OK, enough's enough and we need to turn the temperature up. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think a fair statement is that there are so many more accountabilities for law enforcement than ever before. Sure. Don't forget, they've got the criminal code, number one, and then they've got the Police Service Act, number two, and then they've got the SIU, number three, and then they've got the OIPRD, number four. So when you put all of that in a vacuum, of course, it creates these quasi-political moments, but there's a cost to that. Comprehensive training and understanding, making sure that your intent's right, making sure that you're following rule of law each and every day, it's a challenge. In order to be in law enforcement in today's environment, it is challenging. And and, and so, listen, 
the things that are put in place, that's why body-worn cameras are put on them. That's why cars are all equipped with cameras. The booking halls are booked with cameras. And they're trying to do everything that they possibly can for transparency. I think that's what the public wants. And I think that organizations are moving to do that even better each and every year as, as, uh, as fit. Mark Saunders, appreciate the insight, as uh, our listeners always do. Thanks for the time today. Okay, no problem. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk, 640 Toronto.